But no, Genesis 1.22 says, and God blessed them. He blessed the animals. Think about that next time you go driving. Bless the animals, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters in the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. The skies and the trees are now full of life. The seas are full of life, but the land is still quiet. God speaks again. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. Again, this phrase, nefesh haya, living creatures. Doe-eyed cows pull up fresh grass. Wrinkly elephants spray water on their leathery skin. Tawny lions shake golden manes. But God is still not done. Pay close attention to the next text. Up until now, the story is told in a very formulaic fashion. God says, and let X be created, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. All right. Sometimes there's a reference to God making, or the author describes what God made, but overall, this is the formula. God said, let there be X, it was so, and God saw that it was good. In 126, this changes. Go with me to Genesis 1, verse 26. What does it say? Let us make man. Okay, let who? Let us. Who's us? It's God. Interesting. The word for God here is Elohim. It's plural. This is the Trinity we're talking about. This is the Trinity coming together and making this decision. We are going to make man in our image, in our likeness. This is something very new. Unless you think that this is man alone, Adam the word Adam, which actually comes from the word Adama, which means ground, since that's where God created man, you know, from the ground. Adam is being used here as a word for humankind. So Adam is, is the name, but then there's also Adam, which is humankind, okay? God actually named both the man and woman Adam later in Genesis 5, verse 1. When Adelia was born, everybody wanted to know what she, who she looked like. And I... It's funny, they laid, me, they laid her on my chest, and I, I'd had an epidural. I'd had kind of a rough 45-plus-hour labor. And um, I was really tired, so I, you know, I, was, I was like, oh, baby, good, finally. Um, <laughs> but Kevin was paying attention more to her features, and he said it was like looking into the face of his father-in-law. I think that was a little disturbing for him because she was a girl. <laughs> and he was like, this looks like Roy. Um, <laughs> But she's, you know, she's, she's, as she's developed, she has started to take on different characteristics of, of both Kevin and I, different facial expressions, um, and she, she's made in our image. What does this mean? This is incredible. In fact, it's so incredible that verse 27 switches from prose into poetry. This event is too incredible to use regular phrasing. Read what it says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Created them, excuse me. Do you hear this rhythm? The triple use of the word created, the double use of image. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow does something very similar in his poem, Hiawatha's Childhood. Bright before it beat the water, beat the clear and sunny water, beat the shining big sea water. You hear this kind of rhythm. Genesis 1, though, if you notice, you get to the end of Genesis 1, and it doesn't detail 
how human beings are created. It just says, you know, so God created man in his image. This chapter is focused more on summarizing the events, but chapter two, that gets us into the nitty gritty. It slows the narrative way down and zooms in onto the creation of man and woman. So turn with me now to Genesis 2, verse 7. Just a turn of the page. Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. James Weldon Johnson in his poem, The Creation, imagines this scene. Up from the bed of the river, God scooped the clay. And by the bank of the river, he kneeled him down. And there the great God Almighty, who lit the sun and fixed it in the sky, who flung the stars to the most far corner of the night, who rounded the earth in the middle of his hand, this great God, like a mammy bending over her baby, kneeled down in the dust, toiling over a lump of clay, till he shaped it in his own image. Then into it he blew the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Amen. Amen. Genesis 2, verse 8, states that God planted a garden in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. How would you like it if somebody made you a garden and then put you there? I would love to be able to grow plants. I, I barely keep my plants alive. They start to wilt, and then I remember to water them. I've always wanted to have a garden when I was little. My, my mom uh, used to go out and buy me all these beautiful plants, and she'd be like, oh, now you can have your garden. And the plants would sit there, and they'd sit there, and I never planted them, and then they died. And my mom's like, why didn't you plant your garden? I said, well, it was a nice idea. It's in my head. But God planted a garden for Adam. Everything in this section of Genesis 2 is phrased to place this emphasis on Adam, as if God made expressly made everything expressly for the purpose of bringing him joy, delight, and satisfaction. The garden was made for him to live in. The fruit was made for him to eat. The animals were his to name. Evidently, creation is the stuff of poetry because the Psalms are filled with creation imagery. Earlier, we referenced Psalm uh, 8. The psalmist here writes, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And here we see in Genesis 2 how much God cares for man, creating this garden, the, the incredible fruit that he can eat. The psalm continues, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But someone is missing. Genesis 2.18 begins with a remarkable phrase. It is not good that man should be alone. What is it that God has said after everything he created in chapter 1? God looked and behold, it was good. But now there's something that's not good. What is it that's not good? There's There's no woman. Adam is lonely. Well, he came to the right place because God is in the mood for making things. I will make him a helper fit for him, God says. 
If you look in, in chapter 2, verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Wouldn't it be great if it was that easy now? If God was like, let me cast you into sleep, and I will make the perfect mate for you. <laughs> I heard that. I heard that. I remember, you know, when I was like in high school and college, um, I kept thinking like, you know, what if, what if I don't find the right person? I need to find the right person. Not that, you know, when you're 15, you need to be really worried about that, but I was genuinely concerned. And uh, my mom got married when she was 19, and so when I hit 19, I was like, oh, no, I'm, I'm an old maid. I'm not married yet. And my mom had always told me that I had to, I'm an only child. So she told me I had to get married young, live next door to her, and have 12 kids. And I was falling terribly behind. Um, Fortunately, when I was 19, I met Kevin. <laughs> we got married the next year, so I was a year late, but it's all right. It's all right. I survived. But, you know, there'd be times when I, was, when I was 17, I went to Ireland as a student missionary, and I remember roaming around Dublin by myself. And I don't know if you've noticed, but traveling by yourself, it's fun. But it's not nearly as fun when you're with a friend or, or when you're with, you know, a life partner. There's something really special about having someone to share your life with. And Adam was lonely. There's two things that we need to notice about how God created Eve. Helper and rib. God did not make a servant for Adam. God also did not make a boss for Adam. He made a helper. An ezer in Hebrew. This is a word often used for God, actually, and how he relates to humans as a helper. As an Ezra. Remember that Eve is created in the image of God, and here she is portraying this image of helper. Psalm 70, verse 5 says, But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help, my Ezra, and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Help, again, does not mean servant, it's a helpmeet, someone to work alongside. God did not meet, make Eve from Adam's foot, representing that she would be lower than him. Nor did she make him from his head, representing that she would be above him. She made, he made Eve from the rib, from the side. Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets, Eve was created from a rib taken from the side of Adam, signifying that she was not to control him as the head, nor to be trampled under his feet as an inferior, but to stand by his side as an equal, to be loved and protected by him, a part of man bone of his bone, and flesh of his flesh, she was his second self, showing the close union and the affectionate attachment that should exist in his relation. Second self. Isn't that beautiful? Again, this event is too fabulous to be put in prose. Adam breaks out into poetry, which, by the way, gentlemen, is a very good way to greet the woman in your life. Genesis 2.23 says, This, at last, is bone of my bones, And flesh of my flesh. You know, this is the first time that Adam speaks. The first time that Adam speaks, ever, is in relation to another human being. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. And what is it that verse 24 says? Chapter 2, verse 24. They shall become one flesh. Why is that so important? Look again at Genesis 1.27. God created man in the image of God. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man and woman together form the image of God. It's not just man. It's not just woman. It is man and woman together. It's very interesting to me that God breaks into poetry when he creates mankind, almost as though this is the missing piece of the puzzle of creation. And then Adam, when Eve is created, he also breaks into poetry. She is the missing piece of his happiness. Eden is not paradise until both man and woman are created and the image of God is complete. So what is the image of God? If God is not gendered, he's not man or woman, even though we have language in the Bible that often uses he or sometimes describes him as, as a mother, um, what does this mean? If, if we look like him, what does that mean? There's many ways that we could look at it. That God is compassionate, he's maternal, he's paternal, he's gracious, he's slow to anger. You remember when, when Moses asked to see the glory of God, God passed by and he said, you know, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, gracious, compassionate. You know, he goes on, there's all these, these different ways of describing God. But at the most fundamental level, what is God's character? Just one simple word. Love, love. 1 John 4, 16, God is love. Earlier in verse 7, John says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves is born from God, created from God. And if you love, then you know God. To be made in God's image is to love. The tragedy of the fall is that this image is marred. Our ability to love is, is twisted. It's, our love is conditional, and it's often misplaced. Like the picture of Dorian Gray, our appearance is rotted away with sin. But by the grace of God, Jesus came to earth to restore that image to those who would accept his sacrifice. And the rest of the Bible is the story of recreation. If we are created in the image of God, the incarnate one who died on Calvary in order to save us, in order to recreate us in his perfect image, then we should have the highest respect for ourselves and for each other. As a Christian who has claimed the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, I cannot look at another human being with disdain. I do it sometimes, unfortunately, but it's a sacrilege. You know how when you feel when someone says something about your child? I took, I took Adelia to uh, the mall. There's a, a play area, and there was a really sweet little four-year-old uh, who was there. Adelia couldn't walk at the time, um, but this four-year-old, like, latched onto Adelia, like, and she was just, she just wanted to touch Adelia and pick Adelia up and, and just all in her face. And Adelia was like, you know, and this little girl would just come after her, which is what? Just give me my space. And I didn't know what to do because the mom was overdoing other stuff. And, and um, this little girl, she was just really intent on not only playing with Adelia, but being in her space in a way that was making Adelia uncomfortable. And that was hard because I didn't know how to react. I, I, didn't, I didn't know what to do. I'm new with this mom thing. But I can't imagine, you know, going to a playground and having a child say, well, I don't want to play with Adelia. Oh, boy. Don't mess with my child. How do you think God feels when we say, well, I don't want to love that person. I don't like that person. In fact, not only do I not like them, but I'm going to go and I'm going to spread rumors about them. I'm going to talk bad about them. They looked at me sideways, and so now I'm just going to, uh, nope, 
Nope. Or when we look at groups of people and we other them. We say, well, we're not like them. They're bad. They're, they're evil. They have bad morals. That entire group of people, those Republicans over there, those Democrats over there, ugh, whatever, you know? I'm just, you know, it's... You can't do that. You can't. Not if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and recognize that he is recreating in you the image of God and that the people that you are talking about are, are made in the image of God. There have been times in my life where I've been faced with the presence of God in a way that is very uncomfortable to me. You know, when, when um, Adam and Eve first sin. Do you remember what their reaction is when God comes to the garden in search of them? They hide, right? Because they are? They're naked and ashamed. Dwight L. Moody, who's a great evangelist back in the day, he was once walking along. He was, he was praying that God reveal his presence to him, and a woman said, be careful what you pray for because you might get it, and are you sure that you can handle the presence of God? He was walking down the street. He'd been praying this prayer for a while, and he said he felt the presence of God so heavy, he was having a hard, he, he had to get to a hotel room. He got back to his hotel room, he fell on his knees, and he begged the presence of God to leave. Because it was so heavy. Because we are sinful and we cannot stand in the presence of a glorious God. And I had an experience when I was in college where I was going through some stuff and I was, I was praying and I felt this weight. And it's described as the weight of glory. In fact, glory, the word for glory in Hebrew means heavy. And let me tell you that if we're going to think about being made in the image of God, if we want to be able to stand before our Redeemer, we have to have respect not only for our Creator but for ourselves and for each other. We cannot assume that we can just go along living our lives without allowing God to transform us. The glory of God is a heavy thing, but we don't need to be ashamed. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. But that's something that we have to accept. And I want the image of God to be recreated in me so that I can better resemble my Savior, my Creator. I'd like to ask if there's anybody here who would like to join me in that prayer. Would you like to be recreated in the image of God? Would you like to show the world that you are God's child and show them by loving them? Jesus said before he died on the cross, they will know you by your love. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does it mean to, to stand before a holy God? How can we stand before a holy God? The answer is love. But we need that love to be dwelling in our hearts. We need to allow that love to recreate in us his image. If you would like to pray with me today that God create again that image in your life, I just want to invite you to come forward. We're going to pray here. Um, at the foot of the steps. The song we heard earlier, the last part of the chorus goes, I can see your heart, eight billion different kinds of ways, every precious one, a child 
you died to save. If you gave your life to love them, so will I. Will we give our lives for each other? Will we give our lives to God to allow him to work his love in our hearts so that we can show the world what God is like? We're his image. We're made in his image. And let's bear that proudly. Oh God, our God, we cannot possibly stand in your presence without falling to our knees, without recognizing how incredibly sinful we are. And God, we have to fight the urge to run and hide. But because of your grace through Jesus Christ who died on the cross, we can come before that throne of grace. So God, we fall down and we cling we cling to the feet of that throne. We beg, oh God, that you would create in us again your image. Don't let us stay the same. Transform us, oh God, with your love. Pour your Holy Spirit into our hearts. May our hearts be so full of love that we cannot contain it, that it overflow to everybody around us, that when people look at our lives, the only thing they can see is you. Oh God, dwell in us. Tabernacle with us. We offer ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.